Oh, I think Jimmy's getting better and better at that. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's a blessing. I love to hear you sing, but what I really, really love is the truth of that song. Man, that is glorious. Today we're going to talk about fighting the good fight from 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 19. So if you want to take a second to turn in your Bible or turn on your Bible, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 19. But as for you, now remember this is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It is not often that I am going to encourage us to fight. Normally when people in church fight, they're fighting each other, and that's a bad thing. But today we're going to look at fighting the good fight. Now the good fight is a fight for peace, for productivity, for confidence, for hope in the future. And ultimately, the good fight is fought for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Now, why does Paul compare the Christian life to a fight? Uh, well, it's because fighting is not easy. <laughs> Guys, the American Christian church is not, for the most part, in fighting shape. You know, if we were to go to war, and I, God preserve us from it, but if we were to go to war, I don't think we would send our, our Disney cruise line and our Carnival cruise line into war, right? That they aren't equipped for war. They are equipped for luxury, for uh, indulging in all the food and entertainment you can stand. But they are not in fighting shape. Now what we would send is huge ships with huge guns with deadly airplanes on them. That is what we would send to fight. And folks, the church has gotten a whole lot more like a Disney cruise line than a battleship. So we need to look at how to fight the good fight. I had a friend who was a pilot in the, was he in the Air Force or Navy? I can't remember. I think he was in the Navy. Anyway, he was a fighter pilot. 
And uh, we talked to him a good bit, and I used to hang out with him when I lived in South Haven. And he told me one time, he said, you know, you watch a movie like Top Gun, and it's really exciting because there are these dogfights with these awesome fast planes. He said, that's not really how it is. And I said, no. He said, here's how it is. We take off. We get up there. We see the enemy before they know we exist. We shoot a missile, and we turn around and head home. And about halfway home, they die. (laughs) I said, well, that's not maybe as exciting, but that's pretty cool. Okay, so our our military, they are not there to entertain folks. They're not there to put on a good show. They are there to execute their mission. Okay, and guys, it's time for the church to get a little more focused on the mission and a little less focused on the peripheral entertainments. We sing a, uh, a song around here called, Oh Church Arise. And it says, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations." So our fighting analogy is not perfect because we fight with the sword that makes the wounded whole, right? Our, our Muslim friends will fight with the sword that makes you dead if you don't agree with them and join their religion. It's a coercion. Ours is one that tries to wake the dead to life. It is a completely different thing. But nevertheless, he says it is a battle that we need to engage in. So let's talk about how we do engage in this fight. Well, first thing, we need to get in fighting shape. You know, the reason we're not going to send a Disney cruise liner out there is because it doesn't have any guns. It doesn't have anything to get, get the job done with. It's not in fighting shape. Um, when I was in high school, I would go uh, to do Taekwondo classes. And I did Taekwondo from, I guess, the, uh, the eighth grade all the way through college. And I would go for hours and hours to a National Guard armory and, uh, and, and work out. And I'm talking about it wasn't little, some little light workout. It wasn't, I'd go to Memphis and see these Taekwondo places, and they'd be so scared somebody would sue them that they would never actually fight. Well, we were down in Mississippi, and uh, we worked our tails off. We sweated like more than I knew a person could sweat, and we would beat the tar out of each other so that we could have the experience of actually fighting. Now, way back then, I was in fighting shape. Um, I, could, I could do the splits here with these feet parallel. I mean, I could kick Jimmy's head as tall as he is. All right. So, <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to lay down for me today. But... Back then, I was in fighting shape, all right? And that's the way the church needs to get now. Spiritually, we're just not in fighting shape. It took physical discipline back in the day to get in fighting shape. And guys, what it takes spiritually to get in spiritual fighting condition is spiritual disciplines. Now, we know what those are. We're to read the Bible. We're to study the Bible. We're to pray. And guys, if you say... Well, I don't really read the Bible, but I do pray a lot. Man, every pagan I know prays a lot, okay? Just look on Facebook. There'll be people that hadn't darkened the door of a church in 30 or 40 years, and they're happy to pray 
because they think God is a genie, and if you rub him the right way, maybe he'll give you your wishes, right? But we do pray as believers. We pray. We fast. Um, You may say, you don't look like you fast much. You'd be surprised how much I fast. Um, Fasting is a good thing. It's a spiritual discipline. It, It sharpens our focus on the task before us. If you have a thing you want to pray about and you say, look, I'm going to take a day or two or a couple of meals or whatever and fast, you're not going to forget to pray (laughs) because every time you get hungry, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be praying. And that will help you focus. We are to give our time, guys. That's a spiritual discipline. The Christian life can't be lived between, you know, 1030 and, and 12 on Sunday. We have to give our time. We are called to give our spiritual gifts for the corporate body, right? I mean, that's why the Lord gives us spiritual gifts individually, is so that we can use those gifts for the edification of the body. And you may say, well, when am I supposed to do that? Well, you're supposed to do that on Sunday when we gather. You're supposed to sing with your brothers and sisters. We are supposed to participate in Bible study. And now the Bible doesn't tell us we got to come to Sunday school, but it's a good idea. Come on to Sunday school, participate. And then the way we do it, a lot of times, uh, the group that I'm in small group with, we get together and we study the word together and we sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron in that context of a small group. So there are ways and places that you can use your giftedness for the edification of the body. And that's one of the things we need to do. Uh, Guys, we're called to give money. Uh, You know, some people apologize for that or act scared of it. I'm not going to because we're called to give money. And Jesus said where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So I think the best place your treasure can be is in the church. And therefore, your heart be in the church as well. Now, guys, hear me here. We are called to fight the good fight, not sit in the good seat. Okay? We are not just to passively come and attend worship. It's great to come and attend worship. And it's great to do it passively sometimes. I mean, when he was singing a moment ago, I wouldn't do anything but sitting there, except I was worshiping, I promise you that. So we are to fight the good fight, not just sit in the good seat. Now guys, peacetime is coming. The Prince of Peace will someday establish his kingdom, in fact, on the earth. And we'll have all the peace we can stand for for all eternity. But right now is not that time. Right now is our opportunity to engage the enemy. There are captives of the enemy, and it's our job to go and to try to set those captives free by giving them the gospel. So the first thing we need to do to fight this good fight is flee the evil that pulls us from God. Verse 11 says, but as for you, O man, flee these things. Now, a flee doesn't mean the thing on your dog, right? He's saying run. He's saying run away from these things. Now, what are these things? Well, these things are the stuff we looked at last week, right? We talked about the love of money. We talked about the desire to be rich. Uh, We talked about arrogance mixed with ignorance. We are to flee those things. We're to run from them. Now, I was saying that we're supposed to fight, right? Now I'm saying we're supposed to run. Well, there's some things you don't fight. You don't fight with a landmine. You avoid a landmine, right? Specifically, Paul is telling us to avoid the things 
of, uh, you know, desiring to be rich, pride, and as we talked about last week, really they all boil down to self-idolatry. So we are to avoid all those manifestations of self-idolatry. Now the best way to run from those things is to run toward God. And sometimes I'll hear preachers say something like that and then they won't explain what they mean and I get frustrated. But I'm going to explain what I mean. The way you run from those sins and to God is by pursuing the things that he then tells us to pursue. So here's what running toward God looks like. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So let's take these one at a time and talk about them for a second. Pursue righteousness. That's an active thing, guys. If, if you sit back and wait, a righteousness is not going to overtake you naturally, okay? You are to pursue righteousness. You know, J.D. Greer talks about, uh, he tells a story of a dog. He had a dog. And the dog broke his leg. And so the dog wasn't doing anything except healing up. Had a cast on its leg, it would lie there. And this dog was doing a really good job of avoiding sin because he didn't chase the mailman anymore. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't get up and tear stuff up. He was just laying there. Uh, he, he, didn't, uh, he had been neutered, so that wasn't an issue. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't doing these things that you worry about maybe a, a sinful person doing. But he wasn't doing anything. And so, guys, that's, the point is not to just sit still like a, leg, like a dog with a broken leg. It's not to just avoid sin. It is to pursue righteousness. Godliness. It might be presumptuous for, to us, for us to imagine that we can think like God does, right? And it is presumptuous for us to think we can think exactly like he does because his ways are higher than our ways. His mind is so much greater. But to some degree, we can think like God. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So it says you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to renew our minds through the word of God. Now, Romans 12, 2 in the ESV there that we just read says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. I don't think it means when you are tested, though. I believe we find a little clearer translation in the NIV in this case. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this verse is talking about gaining wisdom and gaining discernment. And the way we gain wisdom and gain discernment is through the Word of God. Now guys, a lot of times folks will pray for wisdom and discernment. I pray for wisdom all the time. Uh, James tells us if you lack wisdom, pray for it. And God will give it to you with no reproof, no reproach for you asking. He's glad to give you wisdom. But guys, we have to work for wisdom too. We can't skip the part where we dig in the Word. 
That's like a farmer saying, all right, I want a great crop, but this, this whole sowing thing is time-consuming, and I can save a little time if I don't bother with that, right? You can't skip that part or nothing happens. And so it's the same way as we try to have uh, the mind of God, as we try to think his thoughts after him, we can't renew our mind without digging into the word of God. So it just doesn't work when we say, we're going to skip the part, we're going to skip you know, digging into what you gave us as the revelation of your thoughts. We just want to skip that and go over to the heaven wisdom, so load me up. That's not how it works. Faith. All sin can really, at the bottom line, be reduced to a lack of faith. I mean, think about it for a second. Why do you lie when you lie? Well, you lie because you think, God says, don't lie. But in this case, really, it's better for me to lie. So since I'm smarter than God, I'm going to lie. Well, why do people give in to sexual temptation? Because, because they say, well, God said this is what's good for me, but I think I'm smarter, and, and actually this is what's good for me. Or, or what about tithing, guys? we got folks that don't trust God enough to tithe, and this is related to the love of money and the desire for money. And so when you do that, you make a conscious decision that God says I should do this. As a matter of fact, it's the only time in the Bible that he says, test me and see, and yet we're not going to do it because we know better. We know that we can't really afford to. So when sin, when we sin, when you sin, when I sin, I'm talking to me too, guys. <laughs> when I sin, it is a lack of faith because I don't trust God enough to just do what he tells me to do. We need to have the faith to believe what God wrote in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, the, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If we would trust that that is true all the time, we could avoid a lot of sin that is caused by a lack of faith. And believe me, I'm saying we. I'm right there with you. Then he talks about love. Love is a really good indicator of whether or not you are in the faith. John 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the, the chief indicator, right, that you're in the faith is that you love your brothers and sisters. Are you a loving person? If not, something's wrong. I mean, I know folks tend to say, well, I'm not particularly loving, but that's just how God made me. God made me a grumpy old curmudgeon. Okay. Well, no, God is going to make you loving. And so if you are a grumpy old curmudgeon, there's something wrong. We need to look at what that is. The next thing he says that we're to pursue is steadfastness. And guys, we can think of that as, as faithfully and patiently Enduring hardship. And then gentleness. Are you kind and gentle toward other people? How about toward your family? Now guys, I'm a, I'm a strict disciplinarian, my children will tell you. And uh, I'm, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I encourage everybody who has children to be a strict disciplinarian. But I have had times, numerous times, 
when I'm kind of been an unloving jerk in addition to a strict disciplinarian. And that's the part we're not supposed to do. That's the part we're supposed to refrain from. And, uh, and God is working on me. I think if you ask my kids today, they'll tell you, he's, he's more patient than he used to be. So to recap, we're to flee the evil that pulls us from God. How? Just running? No. By running toward righteousness. By pursuing righteousness. The next thing we need to do is we need to live out who we are in Christ. Verse 12 tells us, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of your life in Christ. Now, he says, the life to which you were called. And we read just a moment ago a commentary on what that is about being called, right? Because the best way to understand the Bible is in light of the Bible. And this is even the same author here. So what does it mean to be called? Well, Romans 8.30 tells us, And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So when he says to you, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, Paul's not implying for a second that you can earn this eternal life. He's saying, live out what you already are in Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, uh, the old is gone, There's a, behold, a new creature, right? We're a new creation in Christ. And so when we, when we embrace pursuing righteousness, it's not trying to do something that's impossibly difficult and that we can never attain. That is what Jimmy sang about. If you are in any other religion other than true biblical Christianity, you are forever running but never getting there. That's what all the quid pro quo religions of the world are. You're striving, you're trying, you're working, and it's never going to be enough. But in Christianity, the race has been won, right? And so we are not pursuing victory. We're working from a point of victory. And so what we need to do is just embrace what we already are in Christ. We are new creatures with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You can do what God calls and empowers you to do. You know, sanctification is a process. Uh, You should never be satisfied with where you are, but you should always be making progress. And I talk to folks, and sometimes people tell me, man, I've made progress in my life. I've got so far to go, but I'm not where I used to be. And then I talk to some people that say, well, sometimes I make progress and then sometimes I backslide and then I make progress again and backslide again. I can tell you I've been growing steadily in my faith for years. Now, am I proud of that? No, I'm just telling you that I know a secret that I want to share with you. And I hope it's the worst kept secret ever because I tell you this all the time. You know why I keep growing in my faith? Because I stay in the word. And guys, when I tell you staying in the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word is the number one indicator of spiritual growth, I don't say that from theory. I know because that's how the Lord continues to grow me. So again, boy, I hope that's the worst kept secret ever. Stay in the Word and you will get more and more and more in fighting shape to fight the good fight. The last part of verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. 
take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, I don't know exactly what this good confession is, but I think it's Timothy's baptism. That's the opportunity for us to, to publicly show and proclaim what has happened in us. That's the opportunity for us to testify through a, a very visual representation that we have died to self, we have been buried, and we've been raised to new life in Christ. And that new life is what I believe he was just saying we need to take hold of. And so I think this is probably talking about his baptism. Now let me say, if you have not been baptized after your salvation, guys, this should be a really easy one. Just do it. Just, you know, come tell me, hey, I may have been baptized when I was a kid, but then later on I was saved. And I need to be baptized on the right side of my salvation. You know, we talk about how delayed obedience is disobedience. So why would you want to do that? Don't do that. If you need to be baptized, come and tell me and we'll get that done. Verse 13 says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now, we've been talking about fighting the good fight. And sometimes when you're fighting, you get tired. Remember that you are to persevere in light of how Christ was faithful to you. I mean, why does he bring up this deal about Pontius Pilate? Well, I, the last thing I would ever want to do is sound irreverent. But I think that Jesus was a little bit tired of the fight. I mean, if you read the account in Gethsemane, gosh, how could he not have been? He was physically tortured. He was miserable. He was praying that if there was any way to do this besides the cross, that, that, that they could take that route. But then he said, but not my will, but your will be done. He'd go to his disciples. What were they doing? Were they watching? Were they praying? No, they were sleeping. <laughs> because they were tired too. Now, it's okay to be tired in the fight. Matthew twenty six fifty three. Jesus says that more than 12 legions of angels would have been there upon his command to deliver him. Now, sometimes when we're tired, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, when we suffer physically, when we have different problems, sometimes we have to endure because we can't do anything about it. Jesus didn't have to endure he could have called those angels to come and destroy Rome. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But he endured willingly for your sake. He remained faithful to me when I didn't deserve it at all. And so I need to remain faithful to him because he does completely deserve it. Verse 14 says, Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, Paul interrupts his own thought just to worship. Now he just erupts in praise. He's thinking about how Christ was so faithful to him, and he can't stand it anymore. He can't bottle it up anymore. So he bursts into, into praise. In verse 15, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. When we read the Bible, when we fellowship with one another, when we get together to study the Word together, it's going to implant truth in us, and that truth should come out of us in genuine, passionate praise and worship. I mean, Paul says that he is universal. There is not one atom, not one molecule in the universe that is not under his immediate control at every second. Doesn't that make you want to worship the Lord? Paul goes on to say that that his reign is invincible. He calls him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Who can test his power? I mean, we read in Job, right? And we saw that Job would say, hey, well, I mean, Satan would say, I want to do this to Job. And God would say, all right, you can do this, but you can't do this. So even Satan, the most powerful created being in the universe, is on God's leash because God is all-powerful. And his rule cannot be challenged by anybody or anything. He is immortal. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. The only reason that we have life is because he has life innately in him. He is immortal. He is unapproachable. But thank God he approached us. We couldn't get to him. I mean, Job said that, right? He said, hey, I wish I could, I wish I could get a hold of God and I'd straighten this thing out and I'd see what's going on. But I can't get to him. He said, I need somebody to stand between me and God. Well, God knew that, that he did indeed need somebody to stand between. And that's why he sent his own son to be that mediator. He's inconceivable. And yet, he chose to reveal himself through his word. And even continues to through his word and through his indwelling spirit. We can't understand him. We couldn't understand him at all if it weren't for his revelation. And given his revelation, we can dig in and study and learn. And then Lord gives us the Holy Spirit. So that as we read the word that the Holy Spirit wrote, then the Holy Spirit within us reveals what he was writing about, right? And that allows us to to understand the God who is incomprehensible any other way. He is all-powerful. He can do anything, anything he wants to do at any time. You know, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So he's all powerful and he's present with us to accomplish in us what he wants to do through the Great Commission. And then after you, after you understand these things, you realize that he is worthy of all of our praise, right? I mean, in Jimmy's song he sang earlier, he said, here's all I am giving all my praise to you. Because, why? Because I couldn't get to heaven. Me running on my little treadmill is like a little hamster trying to get somewhere, right? He gets on the treadmill and he runs and runs and he can't get anywhere. And that's how every... Every false religion is. We can strive, we can work, and we're never going to get anything but tired. And we're never going to reach our goal. So the more you know God, the more you will love God. 
and the more you will want to worship God. Now, guys, we can get excited about a football game or a race, and we can sit sometimes without passion and sing praise to God. I don't, I don't, we can't do that. He deserves better. So we must worship the way He deserves. Now, after this praise, after this, Paul has dwelt on, hey, Christ was faithful to me. And then he just erupts in praise because he can't help it. And then he says, okay, back to business. And he talks about money again for a few minutes. We talked about that last week. But he returns to it in verse 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to give away all their money. No, that's not what it says. It says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So guys, being rich is not bad. If it were, he would have told us, being rich is bad, give your stuff away, right? Being haughty and selfish, that's bad. Placing your confidence in your money rather than in Christ, that's the problem. Not having the money. The money is supposed to serve you, right? And you're supposed to serve God. So ultimately, if God gives you money, that's His money to serve Him. And being rich is not a problem. Being selfish is a problem. And let me, uh, let me add here, guys. When Melissa and I were younger, we were dumber. And we, um, we got into a situation where we bought a house that was a little more than we could comfortably afford. And so we worried about money a lot. And that's just a stress that's foolish to introduce into a marriage, you know. Uh, there's enough stress without introducing your own stress. And so we got into a situation that wasn't that great. I mean, we were okay. We didn't go bankrupt or anything. We didn't quit paying our bills. But it was uncomfortable. Let me, let me recommend to you really strongly, and especially to my children who are here and anybody else who hasn't done this yet, don't get yourself into a bind where you serve money. Money is there to serve you as you serve God. And if you ever get it twisted around where you're in debt enough that you're serving the money, it makes life miserable. It makes you unfaithful. You remember last week I told you about that pastor who wanted to get enough financial freedom to tithe? Don't ever get yourself tied up where you can't do that. Make sure that your money is serving you and not the other way around. He says, store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We read last week, and I'll remind you, that Jesus said, don't store up your treasure here. Store up your treasure in heaven. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. And that's what we need to do. Life is short, and it's too short to live in bondage to money. So I said earlier that we fight this good fight from victory, not for victory. And the victory that we have is a victory that was purchased by Christ himself. Because guys, you know I told you that we fail all the time, but he never did. Never one time did he sin. So he lived a life of perfect righteousness and complete obedience. And he's willing to exchange that life for our life of sinfulness and rebellion. He calls us to repent and to place our faith in Christ 
And when you do that, your hope can be in Christ, not in riches that will go away. <laughs> he says, don't, don't trust in the, uh, in the riches that can't be depended on. Instead, trust Christ who can be depended on. And so if we'll confess our sins, repent of our sins, then Christ will give us his righteousness and take away our sins forever. And if you have not done that, you need to do that. And guys, I know there are people that sit in here Sunday after Sunday and hear me say that. But let me tell you, if, if the Lord has spoken to you today, then he's done what I've asked him to do. Uh, I pray all the time. And I pray with Jimmy and I pray with Steve yesterday that the Holy Spirit would take what he wrote in the word, speak it to you, and you who have the Holy Spirit would say, that is what the word says, therefore I will obey it. Amen. 